Hi, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. Today is Wednesday, April 28th, and I'm TPI's President and Senior Fellow, Scott Walston. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, TPI President Emeritus and Senior Fellow, Tom Leonard, and Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Oh. It's been a big year for antitrust, with possible major implications for the future structure of the economy. There's no sign that this action will slow anytime soon. Given all that, we're delighted to have Crack Politico antitrust reporter Leah Nylon with us today to hash it all out. Leah has recently finished her first year at Politico after eight years before that at MLEX, and she's also worked at worked for Bloomberg and Congressional Quarterly. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the recent 9-0 Supreme Court ruling on whether the FTC is allowed to seek restitution. Why don't we first bring us up to speed about what the case was and what the court decided? Yeah, sure. So the Supreme Court decided, as you said, 9-0 last week, that the FTC under Section 13B of the FTC Act does not have the authority to seek equitable monetary relief. So that includes both restitution for consumers and also disgorgement of ill-gotten profits from companies that violate the law. The FTC had used this provision in the law for the last 40 years to seek restitution or disgorgement from companies in federal court under the argument that they were allowed to seek an injunction and equitable monetary relief, they argued, was was part of the things that a, a court could could award in an injunction. The Supreme Court said that's not the case, that the statute just says injunction, they just mean injunction. So the FTC now cannot seek restitution or disgorgement under 13B. They do have some other provisions under the FTC Act that would let them seek restitution or disgorgement, but those processes are a little bit more difficult. It requires them to use their administrative court as opposed to going to federal court, um, and it just takes longer. So the FTC has asked Congress to sort of rectify this. There was there was already a hearing yesterday before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in which the FTC's acting chair, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, press them to update the law because she said there are 24 pending cases that this is going to impact. Some of those are sort of straight up fraud cases, like people who, you know, fraudulently offered consumers were going to get credit reporting services or IT help and then just like overcharge them. Some of them are are a little bit more complicated cases. And there are, in fact, three antitrust cases within this, this group in which the FTC had been seeking disgorgement, and now they're not going to be able to. Given that this is a practice, of, as you said, that's been going on for 40 years, was it a surprise that the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 that this was not a valid exercise of their authority? Well, the FTC argued that really the Supreme Court is going is sort of revising the law. As I said, this has been the way it has been for 40 years. There were something like eight circuit courts, appeals courts, who had reinforced their jurisdiction here. But this has been a a recent question. There was another case before the Supreme Court, I think it was last term, it might have been two terms ago, about the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement and the way the SEC's disgorgement powers are written in statute is very similar to how the FTCs were written, which is sort of how this ended up coming up through the courts to begin with. As you maybe know, the Supreme Court right now is very much focused on the statutory text. So they said, you know, when they said injunction, they meant injunction. If they meant something else, Congress needs to change it. Well, when it's a 9-0 decision, there's not very much uncertainty about the legal status of it anymore. But 
it seems to be equal certainty on the other side that the FTC should have such authority. Does that have implications for what Congress is likely to do now? Yeah, it was pretty interesting because, as I said, there was this hearing yesterday in House Energy and Commerce. The week before, there had been a hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. It was it happened right before the Supreme Court released its decision. So they they talked about the decision, but they didn't have the the actual what had been decided yet. And it seems pretty much everyone agrees that the FTC should be able to reimburse consumers when they've been harmed. These aren't cases where it's unclear if companies have broken the law. Like there's already a trial and the company has been decided, it's been decided by the court that these companies have broken the law. And so this is just sort of making sure that consumers are made whole. There was some discussion yesterday at this hearing about whether they should put in a statute of limitations so that the FTC could, for example, only seek restitution for maybe something like five years or disgorgement for five years, um, as opposed to sort of a an open-ended fix. You know, the FTC said they were certainly open to that. They seem much more interested in just making sure that, that this is... <laughs> and quickly, because as they said, there are 24 pending cases and that are sort of in limbo right now. Do you think that the Congress is likely to, to solve this problem just on a standalone basis, or that it'll just get wrapped up in the whole antitrust uh, debate? That, that was the other question. The Democrats said that they really do sort of want to push this through pretty quickly, just a straight fix. But uh, the Republicans had said, you know, we are talking about changing antitrust law. We are talking about making some changes to the FTC. Why don't we wrap this into that? Again, the FTC had said, you know, we would like this done as quickly as possible. We have pending cases that are now sort of in limbo. So we think that you should sort of hold off on that, debate that more and just do this right now. So it will be sort of interesting to see whether they they do end up doing that. Senator Maria Cantwell, who is the chair of Senate Commerce, said that she wants to do this as a standalone pretty quickly. So it will be interesting to see where sort of the Senate Republicans come down on that. It does seem like if the ruling holds in the sense that that becomes the way the FTC has to operate, it's also going to affect the kinds of cases that are brought. I mean, it's got to be a big incentive for some people to bring organizations to bring cases if they're going to get some restitution out of it. If they're not going to get anything out of it, why bother? Yeah, that's true. I mean, they had generally been going to federal court because, as I said, it's it's a lot easier than going through the administrative process. The administrative process, you have to have an administrative trial. It takes about a year, and then they appeal it to the FTC the FTC commissioners themselves who rule as the first level of appeal review. Then it goes to a federal appeals court for a second level of review. So, I mean, that process makes a case take three, maybe four years. Whereas if they just go into federal court, especially in some of these cases that are pretty straightforward, you know, like a tech scam, Nigerian print scam, something like that, there's no real need, the FTC argues, to wait four years to decide that that is wrong, <laughs> which right. is why they sort of have been bringing these injunctions or, or these, these cases for injunctions in federal court. And I mean, the AMG case itself <laughs> did take three to four years, but that was because uh, the person who owned the company, apparently a former NASCAR race driver, <laughs> had hired some pretty high-powered lawyers to contest it. Interestingly enough, he wasn't necessarily contesting the... Uh, conviction part, just the restitution part, because he was ordered to repay consumers $1.2 billion. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess the reason to bring a case, even if you can't get restitution, is to get the injunction. So. Yeah. Right. But it might affect uh, you know, housing prices in Florida if you don't have to protect your assets by moving there anymore. <laughs> but, but, so you know, it also seems to, I guess, again, depending on what Congress does, 
have implications for narratives people on different sides have about antitrust. I mean, one is that antitrust has been too lax. And the Supreme Court is saying, actually, it's been too strict, or at least the uh, punishments have been too strict, although you could still say that, that what was legally too strict was practically too not, not strict enough. And also then people who tend to be often on the other side of, of the issue saying that uh, we shouldn't regulate various activities, particularly right now it's related to big tech, because things are antitrust issues and, and should be seen in an antitrust perspective. And even though this is just on one aspect of it, and a lot of the big tech issues are not about anything that would be involved in restitution, does this have any material impact on either of those arguments, do you think? I think it does a little bit. I mean, so the FTC going into court to seek disgorgement in antitrust cases has been a little bit controversial in and Mm -hmm. of itself. The first time they did that was a couple years ago in the Cephalon case. They ended up getting, I believe, $1.2 billion in disgorgement from Cephalon, which they used to reimburse consumers who had overpaid for the drug. And in a room, there had been a lot of questions about whether they should be bringing some of these cases in where they could get disgorgement or whether they should be bringing them in the part three process, that that's their admin court. The advantage of the admin court is it does take longer, as I mentioned, but the FTC gets to write the decision. So if you're talking about an expert agency, which the FTC is, and case like this, or a lot of the cases like this involved reverse payments or pay-for-delay cases, which the Supreme Court had said in the Actavis decision a couple of years ago that they could violate the antitrust laws, but they sort of left it completely up to all of the lower courts to decide when these reverse payments were problematic. So some of the commissioners had really felt that they should have been bringing those in the admin court, which would have given the FTC the ability to write these decisions about when pay-for-delay settlements are problematic. Instead of bringing them in federal court and sort of taking, (laughs) rolling the dice as it were with a judge, you might not know that much about antitrust, might not know anything about pharmaceuticals (laughs) and sort of has to learn that all on the fly. I mean, one of the things that you see debated right now in in this entire antitrust reform thing is, is whether the FTC's part three process is good at all. I mean, you have some Republicans like Josh Hawley and Mike Lee, who have been advocating for getting rid of our our two agency structure and antitrust altogether, putting everything within the the Justice Department and just leaving the FTC to do the consumer protection half of its its jurisdiction. I don't think that's going to happen, especially after the Trump administration, in which there were a lot of concerns about sort of politicization of antitrust at the Justice Department. I do think there still remain a lot of questions about how useful the FTC's part three process is and how often the FTC should be using that, whether it should be using that more, whether they need to streamline it and sort of things along those lines. How does that debate happen? I mean, is that more of a, an administrative process debate or is it legislative at all? I mean, where, what's the forum for, for that debate? I mean, you do see a little bit of this happening at the in Congress. As I said, you know, Mike Lee and Josh Hawley have been mm-hmm, advocating right. for getting rid of <laughs> getting that's rid right. of the FTC. I don't think that's going to happen. But you do also see things like there's a lot of been a lot of discussion about the uh, Smarter Act, right? This is the standard mergers and acquisitions. I don't remember what the other letters stand for, but it has to do with the fact that the FTC and the DOJ have different sort of burdens of proof when they bring cases in federal court over mergers. They want to sort of harmonize it so that, you know, if we do have (laughs) these two agencies, at least they have to prove the same thing. That legislation has actually passed through the House several times. The FTC has generally opposed it because they're the one who has the (laughs) 
easier standard as it were. But I wouldn't be surprised if they might be able to like, they might be able to accept it if they were getting some other things in one of these legislative packages. I think it's always funny to see antitrust enforcers making sure that uh, they face no competition and who <laughs> makes a decision. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think one of the reasons it's unlikely to happen is that uh, is the committee structure in Congress. I mean, oh, that's definitely true. <laughs> one of the committees would lose lose a fair amount of jurisdiction, the Commerce Committee. So. This is why I've always thought, notice that both Josh Hawley and Mike Lee are people from the Judiciary Committee. So I, they should be <laughs> the ones who, at the DOJ, should have all the antitrust authority. You don't really see people like uh, Roger Wicker over there on the Commerce <laughs> Committee saying, oh yeah, no, I, don't, I really don't want a <laughs> authority over this anymore. Of course, as we know, Josh Hawley is a stickler for process and uh, tradition, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fun to something sort of a, uh, Gossip adjacent. And, My favorite. Uh, yes, uh, Biden, Biden world. Um, so, so far, President Biden has not named an AAG for antitrust or the permanent chair of the FTC. I, and we shouldn't play like the guessing game because, you know, if he names them all this afternoon, then we might be wrong tomorrow. And you never oh, want to. I think we should play the guessing. <laughs> well, you can make guesses and then you can be the one who's, who's wrong. I want Lee um, to make, I want Lee to make guesses. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I want to know, though, is what do you think this play indicates, if anything? I mean, maybe. To be fair, I mean, you know, there are some other things going on, a pandemic, for example. And, uh, and just because, you know, this is something we care about doesn't mean it's really the most important thing. But, you know, does it indicate, you know, debates about the real direction that they want to take antitrust? I think there's a little bit of that. I will say, you know, the pandemic is definitely part of the delay here. I mean, if you talk to folks in the administration, they say, you know, the number one priority for the Biden team coming in was getting the pandemic under control, getting the vaccine rollout. And then once that was under control, they, they were moving to the second part of the agenda, which is the build back better, as it were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the what to do about antitrust, what to do about economic policy is, is definitely more of the, the second half <laughs> than the, the pandemic vaccine part. So that, I think, is why we've seen a little bit of delay. I mean, in the Obama administration, they had named their FTC chair and their assistant attorney general for antitrust by... I want to say mid-February, early March. Mm -hmm. Um, And here we are now at the end of April and we still don't have either of those. I think the other question is definitely what direction they want to move in here. And you've sort of seen throughout the naming of appointees a little bit of an internecine war, I would call it, within the Democratic Party between what I would say are are the more progressive half and sort of the more, maybe the more moderate half. Mm -hmm. And antitrust is an area that the progressives really, really care about, I think, to an extent that may have surprised the Biden people. You know, towards, I want to say, I don't remember when exactly, but I think it was around February when there were starting to be some names floated of potentials for Assistant Attorney General for antitrust. And a bunch of the names that were coming out were former Obama administration officials. There was like, huge hue and cry among the the progressives about how this was like really unacceptable. It was, I think, a little bit surprising. I'm, you had a lot of people weighing in, a lot of people that you might not even expect it to. I mean, the guy who played the Hulk, like, had an opinion about who should be the assistant attorney general for antitrust. And I was like, that's not something I expected. <laughs> that's true, but you don't want to make him mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... I think that definitely took them back. And 
the other thing I will I will mention, you know, I did report this in a, a story a couple weeks ago was, you know, the the sort of favorite for Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust had long been Terrell McSweeney. She mm. is a former FTC commissioner. She had worked, also worked at the Justice Department before she went over to the FTC, and she is a longtime Biden aide. So, mm-hmm. you know, she she sort of fit all of the boxes of, of what they were looking for, but she has represented some third parties in the Justice Department's case against Google. And that raised some ethical ethics concerns. And so after sort of that came up, she pulled herself from consideration, which sort of, I think, sent the White House a little bit back to square one in determining what they want to do. Because a lot of these agencies, if, if you've noticed, they, they don't generally just name one person. They, they tend to try and sort of name their entire slate at once. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that when we get this, we're going to get the AAG for antitrust. We're going to get the FTC chair. We're probably also maybe going to get the names of some of the, the deputies at the, the antitrust division. So I think once Terrell was sort of out of consideration, they sort of had to, to rejigger a lot of things in thinking about how they want to approach this. So when they had to rethink it, does that indicate, do you think that it wasn't something that, as you call it, the moderate group cared that much about and they're willing to just go with whatever generated less controversy? Or is it something that someone else, someone had to give in on something else for to get? You know, are there, were there any trade-offs? That's sort of interesting. You know, I, <laughs> I tend to be, I'm a reporter, so I'm a little bit cynical. I tended <laughs> to think that they named Tim Wu and Lena Khan first to, to sort of give the progressives a little bit of a bone mm. so that they can then name a slightly more moderate <laughs> folks for AAG for antitrust and FTC chair. We'll see. I mean, the top name that you hear a lot for FTC chair is Carl Racine. He, he's a DC attorney general. You know, so he has a lot of consumer protection experience, which oftentimes the FTC chair doesn't. So that that's definitely pretty interesting. He's also been very outspoken on big tech issues. He was one of the first attorneys general to bring a suit against Facebook over the Cambridge Analytica data breach. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has been involved in both the multi-state coalitions that have brought antitrust suits against Google and against Facebook. So he has both sort of the consumer protection and the antitrust chops. The biggest question there is whether he, he'll take it, right? You know, if, if DC were to get statehood, he, he would be in a good position to uh, <laughs> run for, you know, I guess, I guess it would no longer be mayor, it would be governor um, oh, wow. or, senator. or senator. Yeah. <laughs> so. so, but isn't there also a, a more tech, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the rules, but the more technical issue that many of the people, maybe Terrell McSweeney among them, People who are at big law firms that have represented parties, either Google, Facebook, or other parties involved, might have to recuse themselves. Oh, yeah. That is definitely the biggest problem with the AAG for antitrust right now. You know, the progressives have made it very clear that they don't want folks who have represented the big tech companies. They don't want sort of a return to the past where... You know, it, you you might be allowed to go in government for that, and you'd be recused for two years. But you know, then then you would be allowed to sort of make decisions on that. The problem is, though, now that that we have this ethics opinion that says that if you have represented any of the opponents of particularly Google, also maybe Apple, because you know the Justice Department has an ongoing antitrust investigation into Apple, that that would represent a, a potential conflict that you would have to get waived by the attorney general or the White House in order to to take a position. If you can't have anyone who has represented big tech 
and you can't have anybody who's represented companies who've complained about big tech, the pool of potential candidates is now suddenly very small. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you know, the two, the two top candidates for quite a while on predicted for the assistant attorney general's slot have been John Sallet and Jonathan Cantor, the only ones really who've been out of, outside of di- single digits. And Jonathan Cantor, I, I gather, has represented a lot of companies on the other side from Google. John Sallet, of course, has worked for the Colorado Attorney General against Google. I don't know if that's an ethical issue, but I mean, are either of those issues that they're going to, difficult issues to deal with? Yeah, I mean, so either of them, the way it's been described to me is either of them would require a waiver. It's seen as slightly less problematic to grant a waiver for somebody who has represented a state, I've been told, because In that case, you're representing a separate sovereign. They're sort of coordinating with the Justice Department, but, you know, they're allowed to bring their own case. He he was not, it's viewed as Jonathan Sallett was, you know, in the room on these discussions representing Colorado, but he wasn't advocating for a particular client. Whereas with, in in the case with Jonathan Cantor and previously Terrell McSweeney, they were in the room representing a particular client. They wanted a particular outcome. And that's viewed as more potentially problematic, not necessarily disqualifying. There have been some cases in the past where someone who has represented particular company in a case has been given a waiver to continue working on that case on behalf of the agency. So the best example I have was there was a case that the FTC did against Intel back in the early, I want to say early 2000s. And O'Melvinine Myers was the law firm, Jonathan Sallett in particular, and <laughs> O'Melvinine Myers represented Intel. Rich Parker was a lawyer who had also represented Intel. And then he was going inside to the FTC to be the director of the Bureau of Competition. And he was granted a waiver to still help represent the FTC in that case. So it's not, it's not unheard of to grant waivers. But you can certainly bet that people like Google and Apple (laughs) are not going to be happy with the prospect of there being a waiver granted to somebody who has advocated, you know, strongly against them. So Amy Klobuchar has a book out. Yes, Um, I read it. (laughs) Well, good, because I haven't read it yet. I guess it came out yesterday, huh? Yeah, they gave me an advanced copy, so. (laughs) Oh, okay. So so you you read it before the 27th. Uh, you You had written a bit about it in Politico already. Tell us what you think. Yes. The first half of it is sort of a, a brief history of the United States' views towards monopoly. It, it definitely, it starts with the Boston Tea Party and goes straight through like the Ranger movement and uh, the beginnings of the progressive era in the early 1900s, the big breakups of Standard Oil and, and such. And then the, the sort of second half she spends talking about sort of our current, where we are currently, what she thinks needs to happen now. That part was the, you know, when I found more interesting, I am somewhat familiar with the history of antitrust in the U.S. <laughs> but, I, you know, it, it was actually a pretty good read. So even if uh, if you don't feel like reading, you could probably skip the first 200 pages if you if you didn't want to read the history part, but it was, it was still interesting. Okay, then I'm two-thirds done. <laughs> you know, I, I do follow uh, Amy Klobuchar around quite a bit, so I had, I had heard a lot of her talking points before, but it is, she still had, you know, quite a, a lot of interesting things to say. Over the past, you know, she really talked a little bit about how the um, Chicago school 
sort of antitrust thinking, this focus on consumer welfare prices has really led to a significant consolidation in a, in a lot of markets. She, <laughs> she really did the work there, you know, listing the number of companies that make cat food. There are only four. I did not know that. There are only two major make it, makers of caskets now. And, uh, you know, there, there are obviously some more famous ones, like uh, there's only two major providers of online travel, Expedia and Orbitz. We only now have uh, three major telecom providers. But, you know, then she sort of goes into what she thinks should happen. And she divided it into <laughs> three sections, Congress, the Biden administration, and you. So Congress, she thinks, you know, needs to adopt an antitrust overhaul. And she had a lot of specific ideas about that. A lot of them she has already introduced. So not a lot new there. The Biden administration, she was pushing for them to pretty much name aggressive enforcers and put a lot of resources and focus on competition across the economy writ large. That was something that the Obama administration didn't pay a lot of attention to sort of in the recovery from the financial crash. And a lot of folks, it seems Amy Klobuchar in particular, I think that that was a little bit of a mistake, not focusing on how some of those policies were going to impact consolidation within industries. And the last one was you. You know, a lot of the things were like, pay attention to the news and write your senator. She also advocated for not using the word antitrust anymore. She said, <laughs> antitrust, like nobody knows what it means. We don't talk about companies as trusts anymore. So we should call it competition policy. I think that's a little bit of a harder sell. It's not going to fit as well in my business cards. Right. <laughs> a little bit ingrained now to talk about antitrust that way. But, it's um, too bad she just didn't advocate people to you know, just remind people that antitrust is one word. That would have been a, a, I know, a huge contribution. No hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest contribution at Politico has, I think, been harassing everyone into realizing that antitrust is one word, no hyphen. <laughs> In the book, does she, does she go beyond talking about concentration to saying that she thought it actually hurt consumers? Yeah, you know, she does in a, in a couple areas talk about how she thinks it has harmed people. She did spend a little bit of time talking about Amazon and the need for reforming predatory pricing law in the context of the online world, which this is one of my particular areas I love to think about and read about. So I was I was happy to see that in there. You know, there's been some, and this is one of the things, you know, she she named dropped Lena Khan in there. The book obviously was written before she was nominated for the FTC, but Lena mm -hmm. Khan and her antitrust, or sorry, her Amazon paradox gets a shout out in there, thinking about how the big tech giants really have been able to price some of their products below cost and whether that is good for the economy. Given that, you know, right now the, the law of the land because of the Supreme Court is that the recoupment period is only two years. You know, we've, we've seen some instances, right, you know, like Amazon ended up putting a, a lot of booksellers out of business. And now it's 10 years later opening up some storefronts. <laughs> the recoupment period on that is maybe not two years. Maybe it's more like 10. So she thinks that we need to <laughs> rethink that a little bit. What do you think of, of her argument that because there are, I mean, obviously, this is a complicated debate because one person's predatory pricing is another person's, hey, that thing's a lot cheaper. That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think it's interesting. One of the things that she argued is, you know, this has really come out of the Chicago school, right? You know, it is cheaper. That's b theoretically better for consumers, right? You know, they're paying less money. But the thing you don't know that you're losing is you might be losing out in some type of innovation that could have 
been created by another company that doesn't have the ability to price below cost. Her suggestion, I think, her legislative solution was changing it. I believe changing the recoupment period and and making it just so that it's it's a little bit easier to prove if somebody is pricing below cost. So then you should be able to bring a suit, and that that would certainly be interesting. I think you know you you see it in in some industries now in high tech where where you have the big guys, Google, Amazon, Apple, moving into areas where because they have so much profits in other areas, they can afford to price below cost um, in ways that smaller players cannot, even if those smaller players might have some more interesting innovations in the space. You know, it's it's awesome that we have all these choices, but if the smaller players all go out of business, those choices go away. Of course, those smaller players may just, just be less efficient. I mean, it's kind of hypothetical to suggest, well, they would be more innovative. I mean, maybe, but Maybe not. That's true. I think a little bit sometimes of the Sonos case, you know, Sonos is is suing uh, Google for patent infringement. And there are some antitrust aspects to their argument. I asked them, you know, when they filed that suit, did you think about filing a predatory pricing case? And they said, yeah, we thought about it and we realized we would never win. <laughs> so... Well, what about this isn't that they, nobody said predatory pricing, but it's it's um, related. So with the um, with Apple's what are they call, they're calling them air tags? Ah. The, thing, the thing that's going to compete with Tile. So Tile yeah. immediately complained. What do you make of that? I mean, it's got everything. It's, uh, you know, Apple's using a, a new technology in there. So it's innovation. It might be a lot better. Tile immediately complained. So what, like, how do we think about that? I find that one really interesting. This is, so Tile uses Bluetooth technology. Mm-hmm. Um, Tile um, to, you know, find your keys. Apple's new air tags are using... Oh, geez. They told me what it is, but it, it's a different type Ultra of... Ultra wideband, something yes. or other, yeah. It's a, essentially some kind of like radio. That's technology. why we're the Tech Policy Institute, because we're the yeah. <laughs> Ultra wideband, something or other. Yeah, UWC chips. The interesting thing, though, is Tile has asked... Tile has that technology that, to use the UWC stuff, but Apple won't let them use the UWC chip to offer it on the iPhone. This is sort of the case. Apple also does this with the NFC chip. That's what allows for contactless payments. They don't want to allow other companies to use the NFC chip portion of the phone. So right now, the only contactless payment you can use on that iPhone is Apple Pay. Um, And that is why the European Commission, that is part of the European Commission's investigation into Apple, not just the App Store stuff. So Fair warning, it's it's Wednesday the 28th. Um, right. The SO might come out <laughs> later this week. So <laughs> this, this section of our, our discussion may, may end up being obsolete pretty quickly. But I'm actually pretty interested in that aspect of the European Commission's investigation, whether they will find that it's unfair or violates competition laws for Apple to not allow other companies to use specific aspects of the technology within the phone. That's Tile's main argument is they say, you know, Apple isn't letting us compete on the same level. They're not allowing us access to the other features of the phone. So they are putting us at a disadvantage where we're never going to win because we're not allowed to use other the the same technology that Apple is is letting itself use. So even though they already have these UWC, you know, capable tiles, they can't use them for the iPhone. So let's say that um, Tile is right. Should Apple have to let everyone else use their technology? I don't know. It's a question, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, know that's that's why it's sort of interesting. This is like where it's not quite clear whether it's antitrust or not, right? Like, and why the, the, the Europeans, right, are going with a slightly more regulatory approach. They're saying that 
once you get to a certain size and you are sort of gatekeeping the market, maybe you should have more responsibilities. Maybe you should have to give people access to it so that they can like sort of innovate at the same rate. I guess in the U.S. we would call this the Aspen skiing argument, right? The right. essential facility. But, but that approach is a more definitely more European way yeah. of thinking about it. But also, you know, to make it even more convoluted, I mean, moving away from this a little bit, in that same, maybe it's not the same case, but it's also in Europe, you know, a group of, uh, in Germany, a group of um, advertisers and media companies are upset with Google yeah. for the privacy. You mean Apple uh, on the iOS? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they're bringing an antitrust case too, which would be, you know, contrary to what many policymakers think are consumer preferences, which may or may not be true. But these various policy desires are not all consistent with each other. Yeah, that's that one I find really interesting because that one's really like the intersection between privacy and antitrust, mm-hmm. you know, for people who aren't as way in the weeds on this. And so I, under iOS 14, it's going to request every time you you enter an app, if the app wants to track you across apps or across the web, it has to ask for permission. So you have to affirmatively opt in before an app can track you. That is essentially going to destroy a lot of the way that people have done mobile advertising. And Facebook in particular has been very vocal about how this is going to sort of really hamper their mobile advertising. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are a lot of people, especially people who are focused on privacy, who think this new innovation on Apple is great. You know, this is going to allow consumers to have much more control over where they are tracked across the web. It's going to give people a much more private experience on, on smartphones. The problem that various other people have raised is, is this is sort of Apple unilaterally imposing these conditions and they get to impose them in the way that benefits them the best, right? So Apple is getting rid of the way that people have traditionally tracked mobile advertising, but it's not doing it for itself. It's only other people. It can still, you know, sort of <laughs> <laughs> do what it wants and, and track people how it can. So, Although I mean, that's not been a big part of its business. So maybe it it's not really been a big it. part of its business. It has actually been increasing a little bit. That was one of the interesting mm. things as I've been going through the, um, all of these documents and the Apple Epic things. It has gotten more into advertising over the past few years. In particular, it now makes a billion dollars in advertising within its own app store by having wow. you know, apps pay them money to, to get promoted within the search results. so Presumably, it will make more in advertising with this new... Presumably, it will make even more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's why it's, it's pretty interesting. You know, if, if Apple didn't control half of the smartphone market around the world, no one would care, right, if it wanted to do this. But it has so much power because it, it governs access to the, the something like, I, I'm going to have to go look at my notes, but I think it's 1.2 billion people around the world who have an iPhone or an iPad. So if you want access to those people, you have to play by Apple's rules and it can change those rules at any point in time. So this is, I mean, this is partly a technical question, but so when I've noticed that on my phone, it says you can allow them to track you or it says ask app not to track you. Does that mean that Apple is actually preventing it or are they just trying to shame provide other, you know, other companies into not doing it? Are they actually allowing them to not track you? And if they are actually allowing them, I mean, sorry, and if they're actually preventing it, why doesn't the app say that? I believe what they're doing is shutting down the IDFA, which is the identification for advertisers, which is essentially this little piece of code <laughs> that, that would tell that app where else you go. And to be honest, I don't know why they, (laughs) 
they titled it that way. Apple has first announced this change last year, I want to say in June. And then when there was such a huge outcry about how this was going to affect mobile advertising, they postponed it. And they've postponed it a couple times to sort of essentially give the industry a little bit of time to come up with what's going to be the solution now that they can't do it the way that they have done it for you know the past however many years. And now that it's officially on, as of last week, they're still working out some of the kinks. <laughs> so d- does that mean that uh, the policy doesn't apply to Apple itself, so that the only people who will be able to do targeted advertising will be Apple and the others, unless, unless the, the consumer opts in, the others can't do targeted advertising. They can still get advertisements, but they'll be just much less, they'll be less targeted. Yes. So, on, on apps, not, not through the browser. On apps, yeah. Yes, this is, this is just for apps. Um, so there would no so longer be targeted advertising on apps. It, you, would, you would have a more broad of advertising. You get a lot more advertisements, they'll just be less targeted. Yeah, and so what people are saying is, you know, targeted ads are much more valuable than a generic ad. So it's, it's essentially significantly reducing the value of all of the advertising within mobile apps on the iPhone. I do think that the, I may be wrong about this, that some of the empirical work in the past has suggested that if you can't do targeting ads, you do more ads in general because you don't know how to target them. So. Yeah. In principle, this could be an interesting experiment. I mean, depending on how easy it is to change your preferences. You know, do people, do people choose one thing and then decide they prefer it a different way? You know, because this change was like announced and sort of took place pretty quickly. There had been one study that found that, you know, when given this option, something like 83% of people are going to choose not to be tracked. But it, it will be interesting to see if if people, you know, maybe choose not to be tracked when they're first asked and then ended up turning it back on later. If <laughs> if the app offers them something in exchange, you, you never know, right? right. Like, Yeah, I, well, it's, it will be interesting. I, I suspect, I mean, probably people will think, well, it, it's better not to give my information, but then they don't think they'll lose anything from making that choice, but they might, they might be bothered by more ads that they, yeah. about things that they're really not interested in. So. Before we finish, let me ask one more question about the book. What's something I'm always, I'm always curious about, and this is not a, <laughs> this is not a criticism of Senator Klobuchar at all, but you know, politicians never write their own books. Um, <laughs> and, uh, this is a pretty it's a detailed book about a complicated field. And from what you say, it was whether or not one agrees with our conclusions is pretty well done. Who did this? How does a politician who clearly doesn't have time to write a book, no more or less do all the research behind it, what's the process? How does she do this? Is there a, a committee of people who like her, who are friends with her and agree with her on antitrust, combined with a ghostwriter? And I'm not saying these aren't her ideas because they clearly are and you know, things that she agrees with, but just the process. How does something like this happen? Acknowledgements. <laughs> I'm going to have to open up the the book here and, and look. I did I did love, however, her dedication to her husband, who she said had a monopoly on her affections. That that was the one thing I I did enjoy about this book, is it was filled with sort of cheesy antitrust jokes, which I'm probably the only person who actually likes those. But <laughs> right, well, she knows her audience. So. But um, you know, in general, I think they generally have a ghostwriter. And let me see if she actually says who does the writing for them. You know, you might talk to the person get a sense of what they're looking for, and then uh, write it. The one thing I was pretty impressed, you know, when they first sent it to me, I was like, holy smokes, it's 600 and something pages. It's actually not. It's only 355 because the last 300 pages are actually footnotes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting that... Um, so lawyers helped her write it. Yeah, definitely <laughs> lawyers helped write this. Sorry, I found the acknowledgements. Oh, 
her husband helped her write it. That's interesting. He wrote nearly every endnote, yes, there are a lot of them, and helped write and edit many of the detailed legal portions of the text. Her husband, let me mention, is a law professor at the University of Baltimore in Georgetown. On a related subject to Amy Klobuchar, how would you handicap the the chances of of antitrust legislation actually being enacted this Congress? That is, I started out in Washington at CQ. So I, I tend to be a little bit cynical about anything ever happening legislatively. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it, it's definitely likely that we will see something happen if only it ends up being an increase in funding for the FTC and DOJ. There seems to be a really large bipartisan consensus that these agencies are severely underfunded. They've not kept pace with sort of the, the amount of money and staff they need to take on these sophisticated companies. I think definitely we're going to see that. So we may uh, just see a straight up funding bill or you might there's see... No, there's no shortage of money, right? So, Well, one of the proposals has been to increase the, um, the fees on mergers. You know, they haven't done that really in a long time. So one of the things that they have been proposing is, you know, for the to vary the scale a little bit more. So for very small mergers, they've actually proposed decreasing the filing fee. But for some of the biggest ones you know, the billion dollar mergers, increasing the filing fee significantly. To, and, and the DOJ and the FTC already get half of their funding from filing fees anyway. So that would definitely increase the amount of money that they can take in and possibly decrease the amount of money that the federal government has to give them separately. So I think that will very definitely probably, very definitely probably happen. <laughs> the other stuff, it's a big question. You know, Amy Klobuchar has released her big package. She has some Republican backing on parts of it. Mike Lee has said he doesn't like it. He is the top Republican on the uh, Senate Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee. I didn't expect him to. You know, he had been in charge of antitrust policy for the past several years, and he had never made any move really to to change anything in antitrust. He has said now that he's going to write his own bill and then sort of get together with Amy Klobuchar and see if they can come up with some kind of a bipartisan consensus. And that, I think, will be the most interesting one to watch because the House can probably get through some of the stuff that it wants, some of the stuff it wants. I will note that um, the House Judiciary Antitrust Report got voted out of committee two weeks ago, and there were a number of Democrats who voted for it but said that they didn't actually agree with it and they would be submitting additional views. Those additional views haven't been posted yet, but I think it will be interesting to see what some of the more moderate Democrats are willing to change and what they aren't. There were some pretty prominent folks like Zoe Lofgren, who represents part of Silicon Valley, um, who said that she really didn't like that report. So <laughs> when she's senior enough, maybe to throw a little bit of a, a wrench in the, in the process if, if she wanted to oppose a lot of the changes that Cicilline and the other progressives are, are coming up with. So That'll be fun to watch. Yes. <laughs> um, so we have gone, we've gone way over time and we really thank you for that because I know there's no shortage of things you're, you're, you've got to be reporting on right now. Oh, um, I, I get to go back to reading expert disclosure or the expert um, testimony out of the Apple Epic. They, they did all of the experts in um, written form and then <laughs> they're going to bring them on the stand to do cross-examination. So, so we thank you very much. 